Hello and welcome to the Honest Politics Podcast. My name is Alex Gamsik and I'm the founder of Honest Politics LLC. My company does high-level political consulting, but not for politicians. My services are for everyday Americans just like you and me. So this podcast, I'm going to go through a description of this new service that I've thought of. And then we're going to have a discussion on the book, Joe Biden's Promises to Keep. And then at the end, I'll have some final thoughts on the whole thing. So first to discuss the service, what I like to do is read books by politicians so I can get to know them better. It seems pretty obvious, but usually these books are about 300 pages or so. This book was 366, and most of us don't have enough time or the patience to sit around and read an entire book about somebody. So my service is that I would read the book for you. Beforehand, I would ask you what kind of things you would like to know about them whether it's parts of their personality, signature policies, or anything else. And you would pay me to read the book and bring these notes to you in a report format or as a PowerPoint or as a video or any other way you would like to learn about your favorite politician from Barack Obama to Donald Trump to anyone in between. This is not typical because I did not take notes while reading this book. I'm just going to talk about it from a very rough outline that I have. And by rough outline, I mean there's like a, one or two words per paragraph. So yeah, I'm going to go through the book for this podcast, talk a little bit about it. And if you're interested at all in the service to have me read a political book for you, even if it's a politician you don't like, You just either want some dirt on them or you want to find out their weaknesses personally. You could uh, email me alex at honestpoliticsllc.com. Tell me the book that you're thinking of or the politician you're thinking of, and I'll go through their book and we'll discuss from there. So now we're going to go through Joe Biden's autobiography. It covers from when he was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, November 20th, 1942, all the way until about 2007 when this book was written. So my first thoughts on the book are that it's very much in Joe Biden's voice. It was so unlike other books I've read by politicians in that it sounds exactly like him when he speaks. And then at the end of the book, you find out that he actually did speak most of this book out loud and someone wrote it down for him. And then that same person kind of arranged all the stories together and fact-checked and did all kinds of things. So if you want to kind of hear from Joe Biden's voice, the way he speaks, this book is very reminiscent of that. It very much sounded like an old man kind of repeating stories from the past in the beginning when he's talking about him as a child going through life in Scranton, Pennsylvania and moving to Delaware. He lived in a big um, Catholic family. He goes through his family a lot. To Joe Biden, family is probably the most important thing in the world. And he got a lot of influences from his mother and his father, his extended family, his uncles and grandparents. And a lot of the males in the household would be, you know, around the kitchen table discussing politics. And I think that's where he got his first real exposure to political life is through his family discussions. Um, He also had a stutter, which he didn't have around his family because he felt very comfortable around them. But in strange new situations, his stutter came out more pronounced, especially in class when he was asked to read out loud 
Um, and there's an awful story where one of, well, he was in a Catholic school at the time, and one of the nuns was making fun of him for stuttering. Yeah, so his teacher was making fun of him for, for studying, stuttering when he was told to read a book out loud. So uh, his mom came over and yelled at her, and the nun never did that again. But Joe Biden said he did everything he could to overcome his stutter. Um, I think he, he said he wanted to be in public service from a young age. He's always aspired to it. There was even one ancient philosopher who said they ran with stones in their mouths along the shore or something. So Joe said he once stuffed a bunch of pebbles in his mouth and tried running while speaking and almost swallowed them. So he never tried that again. But he did end up succeeding by going into the mirror and speaking into the mirror and he could see the way that his, the muscles contorted on his face and all of that to overcome the stutter and he says he conquered it so from what he said he was also a decent athlete he scored touchdowns and stuff on the football team he, he was apparently talking about girls and stuff so he was dating in high school he was obviously kind of popular it kind of goes through his life and talks about college he wasn't really a super studious or serious student in college. He was mostly kind of fooling around. He went to the Bahamas kind of on a whim, or it was Bermuda, I don't remember. <laughs> and then he met his soon-to-be first wife, Nalia, I think is how you say her name. It kind of struck me. He, he was very much like a ladies' man kind of figure back then, I guess, or at least he tried to be. So they ended up realizing very early on that they'd like to get married to each other and that's what they did basically even though Nalia's parents were um republican they were like rich republican people from the north but they trusted joe biden enough and said something like well if it had to be any democrat it'll be this democrat so they got together and they had sons hunter and beau biden after that you know, they moved around houses. Also, something I realized from this book is that Joe Biden likes real estate. He really appreciates nice houses and pieces of property. And he's not afraid to do little renovations. <laughs> he actually broke into a house once to tour it real quick, just jogged around the house while no one was in it, and then snuck back out the window and told his realtor that's the one he wanted. So that's something you do, I guess. But anyway, he got a house and moved around a bit and finally settled in this bit large house in Delaware, um, was a city councilman, and at some point, the guy who was the senator of Delaware at the time had been reelected a bunch of times, and no one thought he was ever going to get defeated by a Democrat or anything. So Joe Biden won his first Senate campaign in 1972. He was actually 29 at the time, which meant that he wouldn't be qualified to be senator until after he was elected but before he took office so he's one of the youngest senators that's ever been and they think that because of his being the youngest senator possibly in a while that helped him gain national attention and national money sometimes for raising money he would have to go to union bosses and stuff and ask for campaign funds but usually those bosses or those rich people would ask for something in return or they'd say, well, we don't like this bill or that. And it was seen by Joe Biden as trading money for positions, and he really didn't like that. So he'd often walk out of those meetings without taking any money, which the people around him didn't like, but Joe Biden couldn't stand the thought of undue influence on him. Anyway, he won the campaign, and then 
He uh, was about to go into the Senate when, unfortunately, his wife Nalia was driving with Hunter and Bo, and there was a fatal car crash that killed her um, and the daughter, and Hunter and Bo survived, but one of them was in, like, a full body cast for a while, and Joe had to keep visiting them in the hospital. He was there every day, basically. And then when he got to the Senate, he was both inspired by the majesty of the place but also really just not wanting to talk to anyone and it seemed like he was being very antisocial. and even when people like Hubert Humphrey and all these senators were trying to be nice to him because they knew what he had gone through he really didn't want to deal with any of it the same with the press he never had great relations with the press is what he was saying he never tried to foster relationships with any one reporter so that hurt him in that he couldn't really go to any one newspaper and ask them to run a good story about him. Uh, He kind of tried to fly under the radar and he said he did what he had to to do his job and that was about it because he was so, I don't want to say depressed, that's not the right word, but in a funk over what had happened. And um, he said one of the things that really got him through was You know, he would start questioning his faith. He's like, God, why would you do this to me? Why would you do this to me? And he saw a a cartoon clipping of someone being fried after being struck by lightning. And the person who was fried by lightning says, why, God, why'd you do this to me? Someone else comes up and says, like, why wouldn't God do this to you? You know, like, what singles you out that God would spare you from anything? is it all really that important in God's image? So that's kind of what Joe Biden was thinking. And that's one of the things that helped get him through it was maybe he wasn't being singled out and punished. It's just that, you know, what makes him so special that chance, like he, he should be spared from chance. So then the next thing he went through was kind of meeting Jill. He didn't date for a little bit, but a couple of years later, It seemed like he met Jill, who would become Jill Biden, even though Jill did not like politics at all. She wasn't very involved in it. She was still willing to take a chance on Joe Biden. And now we'll take a quick message break. He did talk about meeting Ronald Reagan and saying, you know, Reagan was really something in person, like a real good smooth talker and all that. But was also kind of definitely not ideologically the same as uh, Biden. They definitely thought differently about policy, but he said he could see why people were so enamored with Reagan. He did um, fight with the Reagan White House when they tried to nominate Bork, Judge Bork, to the U.S. Supreme Court, and this would have made the court very conservative even though the decades past had been dominated by decisions like Roe v. Wade and other more liberal court decisions that expanded civil rights, that expanded women's rights, and expanded voting rights. So Biden was trying to... He very he framed it very well in that he was trying to make it a fair nomination battle, but he wanted the American people to see judge bork's record plainly and shine a spotlight on things that joe biden himself didn't think were right 
So he didn't make it about Judge Bork's character. He made it about, and he didn't make it about pure ideologically, politically. He made it about Judge Bork himself and whether those very conservative values resonated with the majority of Americans. And I think Joe Biden knew that it doesn't. Um, they were comparing Judge Bork saying like, the Constitution makes no difference between what people do in their bedroom and what they do in public or something with regards to privacy laws and what the government can and cannot regulate. Again, I didn't take notes on this, but he described it as intellectual combat between the judge and Biden. So when Biden ran those hearings, he did so very publicly and it was kind of a spectacle and the public opinion finally turned against Judge Bork and Judge Bork was not nominated to the Supreme Court. Instead, Anthony Kennedy was nominated to the Supreme Court and passed that. So in a way, Joe Biden's refusal to let Bork, well, oh, so Joe Biden was chairman of the Judiciary Committee, which is why he was so powerful in this fight. But anyway, um, Judge Bork not getting on the court and Kennedy being on the court led to a lot of more liberal changes later, including legalizing gay marriage for everyone. So you could say that gay marriage is only legal now because Joe Biden stopped a conservative from getting onto the Supreme Court and having, well, Anthony Kennedy was still conservative, but more mainstream conservative rather than more extreme ideologies, ideologies like Bork. And in the book, he describes how thoroughly he researched Bork's previous opinions and he said something like, I think I've read everything that Bork had ever written, which I'm not sure that's true. The guy probably wrote a lot as a law student and as a federal judge. But anyway, while he was doing this Bork nomination thing, he was also running for, he was going to be running for president in the lead up to the hearings. Then he decided not to because, partially because of the Bork hearings and also because at a debate he used a closing statement that was very much the same as one of the um, politicians in the UK or something. And the way he described it, it seemed very fluid and justified. He said, you know, he was on the road studying all of Bork's stuff and he was so preoccupied with that that he was kind of flustered going into that debate and he didn't think to cite the guy. He just kind of said what he said. But anyway, those like plagiarism accusations and stuff was the reason he dropped out from running for president in 1987 before the contests like the primaries even started. But he thought he had a real shot in New Hampshire and Iowa. He could sense the energy of the crowd and people would be crying with happiness at fundraisers and stuff. Well, you hear that a lot from even like John Delaney or Michael Bennett. They kind of see a crowd of people who love them and they think, oh, this must be how a lot of Iowans are feeling, even though they end up getting like one percent <laughs> of the vote. Yeah, he also got a horrible aneurysm. He would be describing these headaches that eventually culminated into like a blinding, horrible headache. And then even later, just like blacking out and not remembering what was going on at some hotel going to the hospital realizing he might not make it and having to you know say goodbye essentially to his sons and his mom but well not his mom his uh his wife before going into surgery and he described in graphic detail what they were doing to his brain and his skull to stop the aneurysm it was lucky for him he went to walter reed medical center which is like 
probably the best hospital in the country. So politicians get the um, treatment that they need to keep leading the country. He was out for like months and he had to have a second aneurysm surgery. So he's been through a lot um, and he's considered what it's like to possibly have to go in and die because that surgery was by no means guaranteed that he'd come out the other side, but he did. He then in the early mid 90s started um, this contrast, even within a paragraph. Usually the paragraphs were separated into like Bork hearings, presidential running, you know, those were all separate. But the next few paragraphs were about the Violence Against Women Act and the Yugoslavia genocide. And he went back and forth as if really trying to emphasize that he was working on some very powerful legislation at home while also dealing with um, dictators abroad and showed that he could do both at the same time, which is very important for a president to do. So the Violence Against Women Act, he went through a lot of statistics and personal stories from women who had, um, to keep it PG, they'd been assaulted a lot and in horrible ways. But even more shocking was the way that it was generally accepted within society. And even a lot of women would say that if a man paid $10 for dinner or something that they were expected to sexually perform or whatever after that dinner which is just like horrible and it makes my inside squirm that these expectations are still were still prevalent in american culture in the 1990s but and they probably are today in many quarters but anyway the violence against women act made much stronger protections for women especially when they're reporting assault cases and stuff I don't know too much about the bill personally. He didn't really go into the specifics on it, but he made sure that that bill got passed, even though he had to kind of attach it to the larger crime bill that a lot of people don't like today. But throughout the book, Joe Biden showed a tendency for not liking criminals, which, uh, yeah, he doesn't like criminals, so that's controversial, apparently. And uh, (laughs) then... In Yugoslavia, there was really horrible stuff that even made the assaults against women in America, you know, in context with people getting murdered and literal camps where women were used as props, basically, by gangs of people and people were being murdered in the street. Serbs were sniping Bosnians when they went out to play. Um... If like the some of the worst possible aspects of humanity is what Joe Biden was dealing with in Yugoslavia at the time, and he would sit down with this mass murdering dictator, um, who was in charge of Serbia. I don't remember his name, and then kind of confront him on his BS basically, and it struck him I think to listen and hear the dictator guy lying to his face the entire time without any emotion whatsoever. Even when Joe Biden called him out with some certain U.S. intelligence, the guy wouldn't flinch or move at all. He would just keep lying about how none of that was happening and this was all the Bosnians and the Muslims' fault and all that. But um, it obviously wasn't. This guy was a horrible dictator who was committing genocide. The fact that he wasn't really brought to justice was horrible too. Just like the atrocities that these people were facing. It reminds you how lucky we have it in America that 
this is not happening at all. Not even close. Joe Biden did try to help expose all of that, and he traveled to Serbia and Bosnia, advocated very strongly with the Clinton White House at the time to actually do something like bombing the Serbian artillery positions and things like that. Eventually, Clinton did take action, but the way Biden wrote about it, if action was taken sooner, it would have saved thousands of lives, and eventually they had to attack Yugoslavia again in the late 90s. Joe Biden also talked about right before 9-11, he had given a speech where he actually said we need to look out for non-state actors and terrorist attacks and things. Then when 9-11 happened, he talked about how he wanted the Senate to reconvene and show that the Senate was in session and America was working on it. But everyone else was like, dude, there's probably a plane on the way to Washington and we need to get out of here. Um, and the president was on Air Force One flying from place to place, and a lot of other senators were hunkering down in a bunker in West Virginia. It, it was kind of chaotic and horrible, obviously. I think he visited Afghanistan. Yeah, he did. And he was talking about Kabul and how it was kind of blown to smithereens, both, you know, from the Soviets, and there were even like Soviet airplanes that had crashed and were still on the ground there. Um, and now America was coming in to wage war to unseat the Taliban. He was talking about the people on the streets who all hated the Taliban and ch children couldn't even come out to play. The mission against them seems to be working in the beginning. You know, eventually they were trying to make their own new Afghan government and Biden was pretty supportive of the Afghanistan war and trying to help these people out who had already you know, the country had already been flattened and devastated by the Soviets before. Now America's job was to kind of put in roads, schools, hospitals, kind of make it a nation that could stand on its own two feet. He talked about Iraq and the whole lead up to Iraq. He covered Iraq pretty extensively. And it's not like Joe Biden was itching to go to war with Iraq. I think that's a misconception that we have now just because he voted for the authorization. It's a lot more complicated. So I'll try to explain it even though I didn't take notes on it, because after 9-11, there was kind of a split in the Bush White House between the State Department with Colin Powell, who was a very respected person in general, and then there was Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney on the other side, kind of in the Pentagon area where the military was. George Bush was more of a blank slate in that he didn't have much foreign policy experience. He was a Texas governor, so his expertise was more with domestic policy. But of course, he was thrown into this new um, role as a foreign policy president. And previously, before all of 9-11 and everything, when he made a large trip to Europe, he would go to Joe Biden and ask for advice on how to come out of Europe um, as a better president. Biden uh, um, told Bush he should be engaged in Europe. That should be the headline coming out. Bush succeeded in that, you know, being a strong supporter of NATO, telling the European allies he has their back and he's willing to work with them. Very basic but very important things that an American leader should project. Then with 9-11, Bush seemed to more often than not take the Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld side, which Joe Biden described as neoconservatism, neocons, 
where they thought they could export democracy to other places in the world, basically, by force. And, of course, the Middle East, for them, was the first place to start. And if they could just create a democracy in Iraq, in Afghanistan, then perhaps the rest of the Middle East and the rest of the world would become democracies, which, of course, democracies have a lot of benefits, like how very few democracies go to war with each other and all this stuff, so... Joe Biden said he thought their intentions were good. They were seriously trying to make the world a more peaceful place. But it was really not good logic. It did not support the way people on the ground wanted to behave and ignored realities. Like someone was saying, oh, to remake Iraq, it would only take $1.2 billion. But then later in the book, he was already talking about how it was $300 billion spent in Iraq. So... Whoever thought it would be easy to make Iraq into a democracy was way off, doesn't know the culture of the area, doesn't know the infrastructure needs, wasn't willing to put the resources in to make those things a reality. What you ended up happening was Joe Biden was a critic. He was very skeptical about going to war with Iraq. He held a bunch of hearings with, I think, Dick Luger or some other senator to kind of expose, like a lot of Iraqi experts would come and testify that invading and toppling Saddam and all of this was not a good idea, even though nobody liked Saddam Hussein, he was a horrible dictator who murdered hundreds of thousands of people, but it was not a good idea to invade is kind of what came out of the Biden-Luger hearings. I think it was Luger, I'm pretty sure. Again, I didn't take notes. Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld started saying their own thing, saying Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and all of this to kind of persuade the public back into trying to go to war. You know, they went to the United Nations. The United Nations was supportive of at least getting inspectors into Iraq to check whether there were weapons of mass destruction. Then the use of force was presented to Congress, but it was conditioned that we probably would not be going to a war with Iraq, and that's why Joe Biden signed off on it, was because he thought that they would have been given notice before the invasion and everything would have been more carefully conducted. There would have been an exit strategy and all of this, but obviously there wasn't. So Joe Biden very clearly said he made a mistake voting for the authorization to go into Iraq and that he had trusted the Bush administration too much, even though he was, you know, fighting against it before. He kind of slipped up with this one because he thought it was all conditioned on United Nations saying that stuff was bad and we should go into it. He thought there would have been more international support. But he said that with Iraq, we went in kind of alone and we went in just to rush through this neocon exporting democracy kind of philosophy that turned out very, very difficult to implement and not possible. So no matter how nice it sounds on paper to export democracy to places that don't have it, you have to, I mean, you, you should obviously try to nudge, and this is my opinion, you should obviously try to nudge nations to be more democratic, but you cannot overhaul their way of life and expect things to be hunky-dory. You have to figure out a more realistic way of doing it and listen to the actual experts in the area. 
But this is what we got. He visited Iraq multiple times. He was in a C-130 plane that had to do evasive maneuvers because they thought there might, the, the missile warning system went off in the plane, which is kind of scary. He's also been on planes going back that had, you know, caskets in them. He's seen the real price of war. He's talked to Iraqis on the ground. He's slept on a cot in like a rundown embassy where they don't have water. They don't have electricity. It was a real serious problem in Iraq. And it's something I haven't studied a lot. I mean, I was in grade school through most of the war. So not something I've paid too much attention to, but it's a really fascinating area to study. And this split between the Republicans with the State Department and the Pentagon seems really interesting also. Just the power dynamics in the White House and why Bush chose to go with the Cheney Rumsfeld's people instead of Colin Powell. But then he talked about um, coming to his family and thinking, you know, maybe I should run for president in 2007 and 2008. To, because he, Joe Biden thought he was unique and that he could bring the country together. He could help the country heal and move on from Iraq and everything that was going on in 2007. Actually, he started running. He started thinking about running right after the 2004 election of Bush over Kerry. It's kind of like a John Delaney move. You start running for president a couple of years before anyone else has even thought of it. That's what Joe Biden did, and he thought his family would be like, oh, no, you can't do this. We don't want to do this. you got so much going on. But his family was very supportive, and his advisors thought it'd be a good idea to run for president in 2007 and eight. So that's what he ended up doing, and that's kind of where the book ends. So some final thoughts on the book, especially in context for today. I think the first thing to realize is Joe Biden is very much a family person. He very much cares about family and defending the people you love. Um, his mother's first rule was kind of defend family members above all else. And I think you have to think of that when looking at policy and politics. With the family tragedies he's gone through and stuff, that's going to be a big part of the campaign is overcoming adversity, especially after we've had a horrible Right now, there's 50,000 plus dead from coronavirus, and Joe Biden might be uniquely positioned to look at the tragedies in his life and say, you know, th say the things that people need to get through. The other one is that Joe Biden is both more liberal than a lot of the social Democrats would think and more willing to work across the aisle than a lot of Republicans would think. Not that he's ideologically in the middle, but he's more practical. He's more willing to make some sacrifices on some policy areas to actually get that policy through the Senate and onto the White House desk and signed. So he attached the Violence Against Women Act to the crime bill, and it came at the compromise of lowering the federal government workforce which I felt a pang in my chest. That's 300,000 federal workers who just lost their jobs so the women, the Violence Against Women Act could get through. But how many women were benefited just because of that act? So you have to compare the costs and the benefits of doing that because otherwise nothing might have happened. We would have just stuck with the status quo. So you have to consider that Joe Biden is willing to work with Republicans. He might even compromise on a few things. 
but he might get more done than you would expect. And I saw an article recently comparing him to LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was president and got through Medicaid expansion and um, the Civil Rights Act and (laughs) some seriously important legislation. But he was also kind of a hard ass and he was an uh, abrasive person that a lot of liberals today would hate. And he was instrumental in expanding the um, Vietnam War. So again, you have to compare the costs and benefits, but we would not have the civil rights legislation we have today were it not for him. So you have to, you know, everything's very complicated. He made it pretty clear he likes to work with people who are a little more ideologically close to him. So there's a lot of speculation about his running mate right now. And I'm pretty sure one of the first considerations is it's going to be someone more on the center left side of the Democratic Party. It's not going to be some, you know, some uh, extreme ideologue socialist, and it's not going to be some extremely moderate quasi-Republican. It's going to be a center left person who's more in line with Joe's platform, which right now it's the most progressive platform in American presidential history as far as a party's nominee is concerned. I think one last thing about Joe Biden is the extensive experience that he has. He has experience getting through very large pieces of important domestic legislation. He's been to areas of the world going through genocide. He's been to Iraq and Afghanistan. He's talked to people on the ground, whether they're crying children or women who survived these camps or men who have just lost their brother to shellings and bombings and stuff. Joe Biden's got a lot of experience. And this isn't even counting his eight years as vice president. He's also been chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. He's been chairman of the Judiciary Committee. He has expertise, or at least a really strong working general knowledge on a lot. Whether any of that means anything to you in the challenge of Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, I think it's important to keep in mind at least the backgrounds of these people so that either if you're a Republican, you know their strengths and weaknesses so you can argue better against them, or if you're a Democrat, you can argue for their strengths and against their weaknesses. I like reading these books because it gives you a better insight on who these guys are as people, especially because this book was spoken very much in a Biden language. Like it sound, you can hear his voice speaking when you read the book. It's kind of crazy. But anyway, I hope you have a great rest of your day. You can hire Honest Politics LLC to read a book for you, actually take notes on it, and then either do a podcast presentation. I can write up a report, which I think I'm better at writing than speaking. But anyway, <laughs> if you get one of my published products, you'll see. You can hire me and I'll do that. Just message alex at honestpoliticsllc.com or find me on social media and send a message through there. Hope you have a great rest of the day. I'll see you later as we seek to discover more of the stories behind the statistics. Or if you want to vote third party, then don't listen to this podcast. All right. I think I've talked enough for today.